This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome all our online viewers. Welcome all our live viewers. Even, even more important. Even more important than our live viewers. So tonight, tonight we are learning for and also we have over here for Nava Bas Rachel Joyce and also for And we're also learning for Ilunishmat Avram Ben Chaimihuda and Yecheskel Ben Avraham. Okay, let us let us get started. So there was an interesting experiment that I came across. And that was where you had a person that was asking for help. Now, the way that this person was asking for help, he came in in ripped, tattered clothes. Looked like very much like a very homeless, beggar-style ambience. And he comes in and he asks a person for help. And he goes to one person after the other, and they usually, you know, just like push them off. Whether it was for directions, whether it was for help with borrowing a cell phone, like like minuscule things, not like help to pay a mortgage or anything, just like small little help, and they brush them off. Then the next part of the experiment was that this guy went and he unlocked, either he unlocked or he got into a very, very high-end car. And I'm not talking about like a Lexus or, you know, Mercedes. I'm talking about like, you know, these, these fancy sports cars, which half a million dollars and up. And when the people that saw that two seconds ago they were like brush him off they saw that he was getting into this fancy car all of a sudden they turned around they'd be like oh wait a minute you you want you what was it you needed directions you need to use my cell phone you know like what is it that you need and they saw this that happened again and again when it was a poor person or somebody who really needed help people didn't want to help but when they realized that this poor person just was really dressed like that and really he was driving a really fancy car, all of a sudden they wanted, they wanted to help. And the question that begs us to ask is why? Who needs more help? The person that is driving a half a million dollar car or the person that's just ripped tattered clothes looks like they're homeless? And we know the obvious answer is it's that it's the person who has ripped tattered clothes. Those are the ones that need the biggest help, not the ones that are driving the fancy cars. So then how come when somebody is driving a fancy car, people are more inclined to help? People are more inclined to do something for people who may appear to have more money. And it's very interesting that money actually changes in how we perceive people. Money changes how we interact with people. It even also affects our character. Now, the Chavot al-Vavot goes and brings down that what is the reason that we have to work to earn a living? So it gives down two, re- two, two different uh, explanations, two different reasons. So one of the reasons is it was because the wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the wisdom of Hashem requires that the man's character, the man's soul, Nishama, be tested. And the, the, one of the ways to test it, one of the big ways to test it, is through work. Are they going to be honest? Are they going to steal? Are they going to work on days that they're not allowed to work, or they're not supposed to work? Are they going to work in industries that they should not work? But Victor Miller goes and explains that all these things are tests on how we will choose to serve God, how we will choose to serve Hashem. Now we know that Hashem does, God doesn't need our test to figure out where we're holding. God knows exactly if we're going to pass this test or if we're going to fail this test. So what is the purpose of the test? 
So the purpose of the test is really is really for you. It's it shows you where you are, where you are holding and what you're able to go and how you're able to gain from this challenge. So many times when when you get tested, you're getting tested by the tester and the tester wants to see how you're doing. You go to a job interview. So they go and they ask you certain questions. If you work in let's say in computer programming, it's a very very big test. You know, you're a developer and app whatever it is that you're developing, you don't just come in and speak about past work experience. They give you tests to go and see where you're holding. What is the purpose of the test? Not for you, but really for the person that's hiring you. They want to see where you're holding. So it's for the tester. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes and tests us, it's not for the tester. It's for us ourselves. That is the reason for the test. It's for us to show us where we're holding and how we're able to grow. And in fact, to show you how much it was a test, the Ramban, Nachmanides, in Bereshit, in chapter 22, verse 1, speaks about the test of Abraham. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God went and tested Abraham. says, you know why Hashem tested Abraham? Hashem tested Abraham to uplift Abraham through the experience. Meaning that the test was to raise Abraham to a higher level. And in many times, says, says Rabbi Victor Miller, this constitutes the purpose of why we came to this world. Now, the, the way that he explains is that when you have a person has a, a righteous, a good inclination, a good uh, uh, desire to do something good inside of them, and they carry it forward, and they do the actual act that they had the desire to do. So now the virtue that they had is not is not latent inside of them. It's not holding still, it's sleeping inside of them. It is translated to an act. It's translated to a deed. And what happens when you take something that's inside, and you make an action out of it, that changes your neshama, it changes your soul, it transforms who you are. So when a person finishes their life, they change, they become a completely different person from when they came from where they, where they started from. This is what we have, one of the reasons that we are put into this world. We're put through circumstances, we're put through situations, we're put through tests to see how we will grow or how we will fall in those, you know, in those tests. When you look at animals, animals don't have many needs. They don't need a home. They could find shelter anywhere, everywhere, as much as the animal lovers think that they adopted a cat and they saved this cat life. Trust me, the cat would have been doing just fine out in the streets. You don't need to adapt a cat. You don't need to adapt a raccoon. You don't need to adapt a snake. They know how to adapt in the wild. They are where they're supposed to be. So they don't need shelter. They can find shelter anywhere. Animals don't need clothing. Again, I shouldn't have to say this, but if you own a dog, they don't need a sweater. They don't. I mean, don't put them out in negative, you know, 50 degrees weather, but they don't need a, a sweater. And they don't even need a stroller for those people that push their strollers while they're walking their dogs. I don't know who they're walking. The, animals are very, very self-sufficient to a certain extent that even the color of certain animals, they change due to seasons. There is the, the, the snow rabbit, for example, has a white coat in the winter. And it sort of blends in with the snow, with the cold. And then it has a brown coat in the summer. If it would have a white coat in the summer, it would be a target for all the predators. If it has a white coat in the, if it has a brown coat in the, in the winter, it would also be a target. So they, they sort of, they change when they, when they need to. And Agadish Baruch did it in a certain way that they don't need it. They don't need that infer, they don't need the extra help, the extra relationships. They don't need that extra needs that human beings need. Let's look at, for example, our relationships. Animals, they don't have relationships like humans. If a dog goes and decides that he's gonna, you know, find its mate, 
when that dog goes and finds a mate, makes their puppies, they build a nice, beautiful bias on the dog. You know, they're building their beautiful home. And one day the dog comes home late at night. Uh, the wife dog is not going to go to the husband dog and be like, where did you go? Who are you with? You know, what were you doing? Huh? You smell like you were in the park. Were you in the park? How come you didn't play with your son? And they, go, they don't list a whole bunch of these actions. They don't worry about it. A dog goes and, and let's sort of speak, gets married to whatever his mates. They don't get married. They don't have in-laws now. They don't have nephews and nieces. A dog has very, an animal has very, very little to worry about. Human beings is very, very different. Relationship, when you go and you get married, relationship is not only with your spouse, relationships with their whole family. And not only, not only is it, it's, it's the whole family, it's each person has a, you have a different relationship with that, with that, uh, family member or that extended family member. And each person explains Rabbi Peter Miller's interaction with a different type of test. Each person has a different opportunity for perfection in you. There's a different kind of problem or a different kind of opportunities that present themselves. Now, when you, when you deal with a friendly person, a very lively, happy person, it's very easy to interact with them. They're very easy. They're very enjoyable. You enjoy yourself. They enjoy yourself. It's, you know, sort of a gishmaka experience, if we could call it that. But let's say one of the family members is a stubborn personality. Stubborn personality is very, could be very frustrating. You could have to repeat yourself again and again and again. And it's a test. Now you're dealing, now you have this stubborn person in your family. It wasn't put there by accident. You have to go and figure out how am I going to deal with this stubborn person. You could go and you have another relative that's a selfish personality. That you can feel very neglected. It's a very different reaction. Stubborn, you could feel very frustrated. Selfish, you could feel very neglected. These are two different, two different people, two different tests, and two different ways that you need to interact. Let's say you deal with somebody that's angry. Very, very unfortunately, and, and unfortunate and common, is that when you're dealing with someone who's angry, you become angry. Instead of going and diffusing the situation by going and becoming calm and collective, you go and you get angry. So it just, you know, puts another fire into this. But an angry person is a different way that you're inter- going to interact with a selfish person, which is going to be a different way that you're going to interact with a stubborn person. So you have a bunch of different opportunities, a bunch of different tests. And you think about stingy. A stingy person is completely, has no relation to any of the above. Where it comes into play is, is especially for the people in the, you know, in the Shaduchim world, is, you know, there's some people that very much look into marrying into money. They want to marry somebody who has a lot of money. And why? Well, it's, you know, very simple. They want a cushy life. They want to be able to sit back, relax. In-laws will swipe the card, pay them for their house, buy the vacations, do on and so on and so forth. But what happens if a certain person did marry into money, but the in-laws were stingy. They had the money, but they're not giving anything to their kids. They're not, they want the kids to work hard. They want the kids to be self-sufficient, so they're not interested in giving anything. So this is a test. How are you going to go deal with your parents, with the in-laws who have a tremendous amount of money and you're suffering to pay the bills? And by the way, in case you think this doesn't exist, this exists all the time. I deal with people all the time where, where people can pay the mortgage and their parents or in-laws have tremendous amount of money and they're not helping them. The, the funny thing is, is then you have people that have no money, like nothing, like barely getting by. And then they have, you know, the children that need a little bit of help. They give them everything that they have and they forego supper. They forego different expenses just to give their children. 
So you go into our, our relationship thinking that you're going to be getting from your in-laws. You're going to be getting from your parents. You're going to be getting from this. And all of a sudden, you're ending up with nothing. That's a big test. How are you going to interact? How are you going to interact now that they're going to go and they're going to treat you? How do people... I have to say this. You know, like, there, I had a friend uh, that when he was dating, he was... Um, he was dating into a particular, you know, family from a, you know, very, very well-to-do family. Like, a, you know, in, in their particular community, they were like the top of the top, financially speaking. And then he decided not to. Why not? Because he found out that even though they have a tremendous amount of money and they do share it, they do give it out to their children and they do let, they do, you know, spoil the children, but it comes with a price tag. They're giving you the money. Now you're going to have to listen to everything that they say. You're going to have to live where they want you to live. You're going to send your kids into the schools that they want you to send them to. You're going to dress the way that they want you to dress. You're going to go on vacations at the place that you want to go to vacation. So some people it's like, oh, I don't care. You pay for my bills, I'll do whatever you want. But other people be like, wait a minute, I want to have my own life. I want to, maybe I don't want to send my kids to this school. Maybe I want to send my kids to a more religious school. Maybe I don't want to go on this particular vacation. Maybe I want to go to Israel instead of going to whatever. And maybe I, maybe I want to dress a little bit more modestly and I don't want to dress this way. And they, you know, they're paying for it. You have to listen. What are you going to do? So you know what's very interesting? When you think about it, when you're dealing, let's say, with stingy people. So let's say you marry into, not you, somebody marries into a stingy family. And it turns out that that money, that family doesn't really have any money. Really, they just pretend to have money. They have, they show they have money, but really the bottom line is they're barely making ends meet. So at one point, this task could either be easier or harder for you. And let's break it down. So it could be easier is, okay, they're not giving me anything because they don't have anything to give. So how am I going to be upset? So in, in a sense, it's an easier test on how you're going to deal with your in-laws. But on the other hand, it could be harder. Why could it be harder? Because they're not giving me anything, but they're still demanding from me as if they've given me everything. They have a status, and as if they're on a high level. And they're demanding me to go on certain vacations, and I have to pay it out of pocket. I had to send my kids to certain schools, and it's very expensive, and I have to pay that out of pocket. I have to drive certain cars, and I have to pay that because it's the status symbol. So at one point, the same, pers- the same personality in the person could make the test easier or make the test harder. And so explain to Rabbi Victor Miller, we have all these opportunities, all these different people, the family members, the friends, the coworkers. these are different opportunities or different tests on how we're going to go and how we're going to interact with them. In the Mishnah in Pilkei Avot, the first chapter, the 15th Mishnah, says, You have to go and greet everyone with a happy smile, with a happy face. Whether the person is a happy-go-lucky type of person, whether the person is a stingy person, angry person, stubborn person, or on just a general unhappy person, there is the same obligation that have a call Adam. Every single person you have to go and you have to you have to greet everybody the same way in a very, very happy way. So every 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 test that we have is another opportunity. How I can't even begin to tell you how important this concept is that you instill it into your mind. When you're first born, your first test is your mother and your father, your parents. And if you go and you say to yourself, oh, if I had been born to different parents, different upbringing, different situation, I would have been blah, 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 blah. And you go down a whole nice rabbit hole. That is a failed test. You just failed that test. You were put in your family situation because that is what you needed to. 
You needed to have that family members. You needed to have those types of parents, whether it was to parents that were not religious, whether they were super religious, whether they were in the middle, whether they were abuses, whether they were overprotective, whether they were just amazing, loving parents. You were in the test that you needed to handle. Then it goes to your brothers and sisters as you get a little bit older. And that's a test. Oh, and people all know, oh, I can't stand the way that she breathes. He's looking at me too much. I can't deal with it. And you're going from when you're little, you had these little nitpicky things and it just drives you crazy. It puts you into a certain point that you can't, you, you sort of can't handle it. This is a test. You know, I get questions. I get very interesting questions, you know, and, and the truth of the matter is, I know that I've been telling people that email takes me a very long time. Phone is the, is the best way to, to reach me and get a, a quick answer. And I get very interesting questions. But when I deal with questions, especially over the phone, I deal with situations with, let's say, sibling rivalry, which is very interesting that it, you know, that it has to come to it. Or even friends arguing. And these things, you know, they, they come to me and it's something that's so interesting that it comes to me and it's sort of like a simple solution. It's like just giving up a little bit. And I used to, what I used to be like, I used to explain to people, this is your test. This is something that you have to go and overcome and you have to go and work in a certain angle. But when you're in the test, when you're dealing with that rivalry, when you're dealing with that annoyance, when you're dealing with that discomfort, it's very difficult, I realize, to tell people, hey, by the way, you're in a test. It's not easy to tell somebody that they're in a test while they're in a test. Rather, you have to go and train yourself before you get into the test so your mind is clear and your motion is not clouding your, uh, your judgment that you're realizing that life is a bunch of tests and now how am I going to interact? Because while you're in a test, somebody could go out from today till tomorrow explain to you a test, you can't process that information. You're too emotionally charged to be able to go and comprehend that, wait a minute, maybe I should do something else, maybe I should do something different. And you know what's interesting? Like Many times people understand it, they comprehend it. I tell them they get it, but they're not able to put into action. It just, it just, like the knowledge is there. It's not like they're clouded that they can't understand it. They understand it. But when push comes to shove, it just doesn't come to fruition. It just sort of like stays inside and doesn't come out. There's a very interesting point between intellectual knowledge and emotional knowledge. When you have intellectual knowledge, you know what you have to do, but if you get into a situation when you can't think intellectually clearly, you're gonna fail that. You're not gonna be able to put it into, into play. But if you put it into emotional knowledge, emotional knowledge is more something that's ingrained inside of you. It's something that becomes second nature to you. And this is what I recommend people, like the next time that you stub your toe, learn to say Baruch Hashem. Learn when you hurt yourself to say Baruch Hashem so that it becomes ingrained inside of you that it should never happen. But if God forbid something worse happens, it becomes, it's an automatic thought as opposed to an intellectual thought process. Because when we have an intellectual thought, if our emotional thought is not in agreement with that intellectual thought, there's going to be very much disharmony over there and usually the emotional thought wins out. Usually it wins out. So let me give you an example of this in, in day-to-day life. Intellectually, let's say you're going and you know that your spouse means well. With whatever it is that they're doing. We don't have to give it, it doesn't matter. Whatever, any situation, I'm just saying spouse, it could be anybody. And if someone's doing it, and intellectually, you know, they are right. But emotionally, you're annoyed at them. Emotionally, you're like upset about the situation. You're tired. Your, your emotions are, are running high. Then even though that you know what is right, and even though that you have an understanding, 
of what is the correct thing to do, your emotions are not letting you push that in. They're not letting you put that into fruition. So it's very, very important that you take knowledge that you want to implant in yourself. You know, many people go and they read books about marriage. And they go and they have these different understandings on life and how they're going to interact with their kids and how they're going to interact with their spouse and with their employee. Everything is all great and they have these tremendous amount of knowledge. And then what happens is they get into a situation and they don't do what they're supposed to do. They know what they're supposed to do. They have that knowledge, but they don't do it. And they get very upset. They'd be like, I, I don't understand. I knew what I was supposed to do. So how come I didn't do it? How come I, I, I acted out of anger? How come I didn't go and act the right way? And, and many times we come through these types of tests. In fact, it's, it's, it's weekly, monthly, and some people daily, where they come into these tests and they instantly regret what they did. And they're instantly like, oh, wait a minute, I could have done something so different and I knew, I knew it. And you go and let's say you go and you apologize to somebody or something. You know, like you go and you, and, and you get upset. You know, maybe I could tell you a personal story that happened. It was like a week, last month of Shabbat. I was, um, and how, how it affected me. So last month of Shabbat, I had my, my grandmother came you know, for, for Shabbat. So she babysitted. We don't usually get to go out. So I went out with my wife. And we went to a restaurant in Lakewood. And this restaurant had a very, very... Wait, can I tell you details about this restaurant? Am I going to speak... No, I can't tell you details about this restaurant because might, it might come out bad. So it was a cool restaurant. I had like very cool gadgets. And I, you know, we, we sit by the table. And right when we sit by the table there was a couple that sat right next to us at the same time. We both sat exactly the same time. And we ordered our food, and they ordered their food. We weren't eavesdropping. I literally have no idea what they were saying. They were talking about, like, it was, that's not where the story is going. And we're sitting over there, and the other couple, they get the food, and not only one order, they get, like, their second order. You know, like, sometimes you order, be like, mm, you know, let me order some more, and they got a second order already. And we didn't even get our first order. And okay, fine, we're sitting, I'm spending time with my wife, I'm happy, Boch Hashem, you know, take your time. But all of a sudden, you know, my wife checks on the baby monitor, monitor from her phone, and she sees that the baby's up. And, you know, she didn't want to bother the grandmother, my wife's grandmother, my grandmother to go. So she decided, you know, like, all of a sudden the pressure is on, like, we have to get back because the baby's up. And, you know, I go over to the, um, you know, I don't know if it was the owner, manager, whatever it was, I'm like, you know, where's our, you know, very nicely, where's the food? And, you know, what's it? he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, I get it. Five minutes go by, food's not coming. Go back and be like, you know, like, we're a little bit, you know, stressed on time. Is there any food? N- nothing, you know, like, I'm sorry, I don't know. We're going to get it to you. Two minutes, it's coming to you. Meanwhile, the other, fam- the other couple's ready, like, paying the bill. And we're like, didn't even get anything yet. And now we're stressed on the time. And I go back to the, you know, manager and be like, you know, like, I- I've been waiting. I started explaining the situation. And I felt the way that I explained the situation came out harsher than it should have been. It was, the restaurant was crazy busy, because you know how it is, after Shabbat, people don't eat, and they're starving, and I don't understand how and why restaurants are so packed at Motzei Shabbat, but people, as if they haven't just stuffed themselves for the past 25 hours, uh, but they decided they need to go eat. So, fine, Bo Hashem, you know, you go and eat, you know, bless all of us, whatever it is, you know, like, it's all good. But, you go over there, and it's, I'm like, interacting with this guy, and I'm like, I'm getting upset, you know, like, again, I wasn't, like, screaming at him or anything, you know, like, drastic, but eventually, you know, he saw that I was more upset, 
And within like a minute and a half, like we had the food. And, you know, as I was eating, you know, literally like we were, we were going to take it to go. We wolfed it down, you know, very fast to go and rush home. And we're about to leave. And I tell my wife, I'm like, you know what? Um, I want to, let me go to the manager for a second. And I go to the manager and I start explaining to him, you know, like, the reason, I was like, the reason why I was so stressed is my baby was up. And there's like a line of like a thousand people waiting. And I'm over there, sitting over there, trying to explain to him why I was slightly upset. And he's like, you know, like, no, it's fine. Like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Like, I get it. He's like, I, let me deal with this. And I was like going and trying, why was I going and I trying to explain it? Because I felt that after the fact, you know, yes, I was upset. Yes, I should have, you know, for whatever rights and reasons and blah, 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 all the nonsense, that maybe we should have gotten food the same time that we ordered it, everybody else, and, you know, we could have been out of there like a half hour earlier, and I was fine with it. But all of a sudden, I got stressed. I had to go home. I had to go, and, you know, I didn't want to, you know, have my grandmother going and watching crying a baby and all that. So then my, my judgment all of a sudden started getting cloudy. And, you know, it was very interesting. You know how they say when you're hungry? I wasn't even hungry, so I can't even say it. But you know, something hungry, your your judgment gets a little bit cloudy. They call it uh, hangry, I believe it is. You know, your your judgment gets a little bit cloudy. So I was like, I ate a little bit. I had my malave malka, and then I was like, you know what? Maybe I interacted diff- the way that I wasn't supposed to with this with this manager. So I went over to him, and I was like, you know, I had to, I wanted to go. Ex- First of all, I apologized. I said maybe I shouldn't have spoken. Maybe I should have been more calm and whatever it was. And again, I wasn't. You know, I didn't. I didn't raise the roof. I didn't like destroy the place. I was like very calmly. I said it, but I felt like even to that extent, I should have done it a nicer way. And what I realized is something very important: that when you go and your emotions are charged, you're not able to think the right way. But. How do you get to think the right way? Is that if you prepare that beforehand, if you instill that beforehand, and that it's no longer an intellectual understanding, but it's an emotional understanding, then even if you're in an emotionally charged situation, you're still going to be thinking the same way that you're emotionally, you know, expected to think. The emotionally, the, mo- what, the ones that you, the, the, the emotions that you trained yourself to think of it. So when you realize that life is a test, it's nice. So you understand this concept. This concept is huge. This will help you in all your relationships. But it's not enough that it stays up here. You have to instill it into your heart that you're able to go and deal with that intellect, with that knowledge, even when you're put into an emotionally charged situation. And whether it's going to be an opportunity or a test that depending on your definition, with your spouse, with your parents, with your siblings. And eventually you're, it's going to be with your neighbors, with your landlord, with your employer. It could be with your employees, with your students, with your tenants. I don't know, depending on where you're holding your life, with your children, with your grandchildren. Explains Robert Victor Miller. Life is a long series of continuous tests. And each test is another opportunity on how we will interact. Now, of course, it is needless to say that, you know, this gets very tricky when these tests become abusive. These opportunities become unhealthy. This you can't say, and, and this is very, this is why it's very important to speak to rabbis, mentors, teachers, somebody else outside of your circle. Because sometimes you think, okay, fine, I can't tell you how many times people came up to me and be like, okay, this is my test. 
And I'm like, no, you you have to get out. And sometimes I wasn't sure. I had to go and loop in another rabbi, loop in another post. Like, what do you think about this situation? But there's sometimes you get in the abusive situation. It's not a test. That's the test is to go out to 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 get away if you're able to. Again, it depends on the situation. So we can't go and be in every situation we're placed in our lives. Be like, okay, fine. This is a test from Hakadosh Baruch Of course it is. But the test is not always. Let me stick through it and let me see. Oh, my husband's beating me every single night. It's a test. God wants me to go and get beaten. These are my malchus. No, not necessarily. You have to go and you have to get out. You have to be out. It has to be in a healthy situation. So the correct answer is not always to stay. You have to know where you're holding. But, you know, using, let's say, this abusive situation. So this in itself is a test. So what are you going to do with that? You have people that get a, they're in an abusive situation. And during that time that they're getting emotionally, verbally, physically, we never know this type of abuse, they get very close to Hashem. They get very close to God. They pray well, strong, they learn a lot, they come to classes a lot, they're very, very much strongly connected to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And then, God listens to their prayers, and gets them out of the stress. Puts them out of a different stress, not a stressful situation. Sets them up with a home, a house, an apartment, whatever it is, you know, finances, everything is set up. And then, instead of getting closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, they sort of fall away. Very, very common situation. It's very interesting. So when they're in a difficult situation, and it's not, it's just everybody in general. When you're in a difficult situation, you get close to God. But when things get good, you sort of kind of forget HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You forget it. And they, they sort of, instead of keeping up of where they're holding, they sort of slide back a little bit. So they had over here two tests. The first test was then when they were in the abusive relationship, they nailed that. They, you know, they got closer to Akadosh Baruch Hu, they did everything that they were supposed to, they got out of the situation, they did everything right. But the second test, they may have failed that. Instead of realizing the good that Akadosh Baruch Hu gave them, they fell back. Not always. Sometimes people go and they utilize, they see the good, that where, where they came from and where they, where they ended up, and they grow so much more. But what, what generally happens is that when things are tough, we remember HaKadosh Baruch Hu. When things are good, we tend to forget where that good came from. So where does this imbalance lie? Like how come we remember in the bad and we forget in the good? That's not because we don't know that everything is from Inashamayim. Everything is Akadish Baruch Hu. One of the reasons is, again, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is, is that intellectually we know. We know that it's good because Akadish Baruch Hu made me have good. It's bad because Akadish Baruch Hu made me have bad. But then there's another aspect is that emotional knowledge. The emotional knowledge was when it's bad, you are stuck emotionally. So you needed somewhere to turn, and you turn to Akadish Baruch Hu in a time of need. And rightfully so, that's what you're supposed to do. But when you're good, there's no emotional charge for you to turn to Akadish Baruch Hu. So while intellectually you understand where you're holding, you understand that you have to give Shabbat and Aydat to Akadish Baruch Hu, but emotionally you're not there yet. You're not there yet. And the reason is, is because you have to go and you have to instill this information emotionally. All any, anytime you come to a class, anytime you come to a shir, it's all intellectual. Even if the speaker says a sad story and you get super emotional. It's still in an intellectual level of thinking. 
It, when you bring it to emotion is when you ingrain it inside you, it becomes part of you. It becomes you that without thinking, this is what you say, this is how you act, this is how you deal, and this is how you respond. Because it's becoming part of who you are as a person. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes and gives us tests in life, explains Rabbi Victor Miller, it's like a chicken roasted on a spit, where you go and you slowly turn the chicken around. You slowly, you know, uh, now they have grills, these rotisserie grills, where it slowly goes and it turns it around. Why is it go? Because every single area of the, of the meat, of the chicken, is going to get, you know, cooked to perfection. Our whole life gets turned around on like this bit. While we pass one test, and we go, and, and it's nice, a good cook. Then Akadosh Baruch says, okay, you know, the side of here needs a better cooking. And it slowly, slowly gets turned around. And we get tested from all different angles. Our life is all a bunch of tests. And it depends what you're going to do with this with these tests. What are you going to do with it? These relationships, every relationship is a test. How do you deal with your sibling? How do you deal with your parents? How do you deal with your coworkers? How you, all this is a whole series, a bunch of tests. And let's say, you know, when you're dealing with money, money is also a test. What are you going to do with that, with that income that you have? Are you going to use it for a mitzvah? Are you going to do it for a good deed? Or are you going to do it for an avera, a sin? Are you going to do it for a bad deed? You know, are you going to give it to charity? Or to whatever, you know, other, you know, things that are not required, needed, or warranted through the lens of the Torah. There's one thing that, that I have a very hard time understanding. So, and that is when you're dealing with Staka. Let's say, for example, the organization DailyGiving.org. DailyGiving.org is an organization, some people are already smiling, know exactly what I'm talking about. DailyGiving.org is an organization that I am... Whatever. Obviously, you guys know my feelings about it. I've spoken about this numerous times. Uh, very, very pro this awesome, amazing organization. It's an organization that basically gives a dollar a day to Tzedakah. That you give them a dollar and they give it to a, every, you know, every day a different, a different charity, a different Tzedakah. Now, they don't just give you, they're now they're over $8,000 a day. So there's over $8,000 that are going every day. So you're part of this whole crew. So every month you give like $32 or something like that, you know, whatever, $31 uh, to this organization. They take it on monthly and they give it every day to a different organization. So you, along with 8,000 other people, are giving one organization $8,000. $8,000 is a lot of money. It's a hefty donation. And you're a part of that. And it's a huge... It's like a huge thing. And I'm like, I don't know. And I can't understand for the life of me. Unless, one reason, unless someone doesn't have any money, then I understand. But if somebody has the money, if somebody has that extra $31 a month, which is more than your cell phone bill usually, how come people aren't signing up to dailygiving.org? Like, like it makes, and you want to know why? Because it's a test. You know how many people, you know, I spoke about this numerous times, and people, and even, even the founder of Daily Giving came over to me once and said, you know, people want to give, but they forget. They want to give. It's in their mind. They hear about the organization, they, they, and they forget. So the more that you repeat it, the better off they are. And this is what he was telling me based off speaking to a lot of people that, you know, joined his organization. But what, you know, what, what bothers me, what makes me think of like, so you know you have this amazing organization. They don't take anything. All the money goes directly to the, to the charities. So you have here an opportunity, a huge opportunity, to give together with Klal Yisrael to, and by the way, there's also non-Jews that also donate to this, to give to this, you know, all these amazing organizations. And you have this ability to be part of this, like, amazing structure. And 
people intellectually, they want to do it. They're like, yeah, that's a great idea. But they never actually go and they never put it actually into fruition. They never do it. Now why? You could say laziness. You could say that. Yes, maybe. But I'll tell you a different reason. That intellectually you know what is right. But emotionally you're not driven to do that. Like if you have, if somebody goes and, and is very, very you know, driven to make money. And he's speaking to somebody and he gives them an amazing stock idea. And he explains to him how, and again, non-insider training, everything co- trading, everything's kosher, yosher, everything's right. And he explains to him how this stock is going to, they're not going to wait for like a week or two to call the stockbroker. If they're a, a, you know, the type of investor that's very, very, you know, active and trying to make a lot of money, the second that they hear a good deal, they're going to go and they're going to try to get and capitalize onto that. So what's the difference like with somebody else that, knows what the thought, what the organization is or what the, you know, way to make money is for somebody that actually acts upon it. And I believe there's an intellectual information, an emotional one. There's somebody that's emotionally is driven to do good all the time and only striving to greater. They hear an idea, they hear an opportunity, they jump on it. They don't think twice. They don't wait for their intellectual information to get into their emotion because it's already there. So when you're here in an organization like Daily Giving, Torah Anytime, whatever, all these amazing organizations, you're not stopped for a second to be like, okay, I want to be part of it. I want to be connected to it. To it. I got onto Torah Anytime, only, and I, I, not because I deserve it by any means or form. I was on Torah Anytime, I think one of the reasons I got on Torah Anytime is I was helping them before they found out that I was speaking. <laughs> I was, you know, I was just, I just wanted to be part of the organization. I thought it was an amazing organization. And I wanted to be a part of it. I, you know, it wasn't about me being, being, you know, speaking on it. Baruch Hashem, you know, God gave me the schut, the merit to be a part of such an amazing organization. But I wanted to be, even just on the back end, I was happy to be a part of it. It's such an amazing organization. But so many people go to these types of thoughts all the times in their mind. They're like, that's an amazing thought. That's an amazing, I, I want to be part of it. But it doesn't go into action. And one of the reasons is, is that it's stuck in your thought. It doesn't go into your emotion. It doesn't go into your... You don't have that drive. You need to have the drive. You want to do good. Then you hear something like dailygiving.org. You're going to go and be like, wait a minute. Pause this share. Let me go sign up right now. You hear about like an amazing organization like touranytime.com. It, it becomes part of you. Be like, wait a minute. I want to be part of it. I, I got to give a shout out. I don't know if I could say their names, but there's a, there's a, there's a few people... That Mamash, they helped me on all my, uh, you know, the social media, the advertising, everything. They're, they're, they're Mamash, it's all, they're, they're doing all the back end part. Like, I get, like, I'm so grateful for everything that they're doing. So I have very few handful of people that are Mamash behind over there. There's a small WhatsApp group that they're, they, they know who they, who they are. And why did they come? How did they start? They decided they wanted to be a part of something. They wanted to go and spread Torah. So they reached out to me. Every single one of them does it 100% L'Shem Shemaim. They're not getting a penny. They're not doing anything other than doing it for L'Shem Shemaim. They're doing it because they want to go and they spread God's word. You have people that be like, wow, that's an amazing idea. That's an amazing shear. And they take it to themselves. Then you have another person that hears an amazing shear. They'd be like, you know what? I want to share it with the world. I want to share it with the world. Someone came over to me once, not too long ago. They know who they are. And they decided they want to go and advertise, you know, like a share or two of mine. They advertised, and it be, they added like maybe four or five thousand views of sharing to it. Why? Because they had a desire to go and spread Torah. 
Now, we all have a desire to spread Torah, and we all have a desire. And by the way, this works for business as well. You have people that go and they have these great business ideas, and then somebody else does it, and then somebody else. Why? Because intellectually they have the ideas, but they don't have that emotional drive. You know what's funny? What the funny part is, is that I had no intent of speaking tonight about the emotional drive versus intellectual drive. Like, that wasn't even on my agenda. It wasn't. My purpose was to go and tell you about the tests. But for whatever reason, before I spoke about this class, I did say, Kapitel Tehillim, go and ask the Kaddish Baruch to put the right words in my mind. And I'm, you know, I'm happy that he did, because this, this idea is huge, and I really should repeat it more, more often than I do, really do. And, you know, when you're dealing in life, and you're dealing with your obstacles, and you're dealing with your difficulties, and even when you're dealing with your non-difficulties, your amazing times, those are all tests on how you're going to interact. Says the Chobos HaVavos, going back to where we went way off topic, and that is, what is the reason that we are put into, why do we have to work? So one of the reasons is that, says the Chobos HaVavos, it's a test. Life is a bunch of tests. Work is a test. That's reason number one. The second reason, says the Chavos Avavos, is that it's to keep man busy. It's supposed to keep a man busy. Because if a person is satiated, relaxed, calm, is not interested in, you know, very, very content of where they're holding, they, which again, can be good and can be bad, but in the, in the bad aspect, they can forget to fulfill their obligations to HaKadosh Baruch And... Not that this is a good example, but this is an example nonetheless. And that is in Saudi Arabia, they are a very, very religious country. Very religious. To, you know, to a certain extent of the law, you know, they take it very, very seriously. But what comes out is that they're also, especially the, you know, like royalty and the royal family can be, at times, extremely, extremely immoral. They try to hide it, they try to put it up, but at times become public. Why? Because oil made them very wealthy, very rich, and they don't have to work. So they buy all their fancy houses in different oil areas around the world. There's like penthouses that are bought by these wealthy oil tycoons that spent tens of millions of dollars and never even entered foot into the, into the apartment. Imagine you're buying a $50 million house in Manhattan, and you never step foot inside of it. For years, they just oh, they bought it. And they forgot whatever it is to go inside of it. You have... You have, you know, people that have so much and they, they don't have to do anything. So what happens? They get bored. When you get bored, you get in trouble. How you get in trouble? You get morality, different uh, types of situation. It says the Mishnah, the second parrot, the second Mishnah. It says, Because the translation for that is, learning Torah is good with earning a livelihood. Why? Because laboring in both of them causes a person to forget. Mishkachas avon. Causes a person to forget sin. When you're too busy, when you're exhausted, you can't sin. You just like fall asleep. You like can't do anything bad. You're like, oh, I can't. I can't even breathe. I'm exhausted and you collapse and you fall asleep. The problem is that people don't work anymore. You look at the COVID, you know, since COVID, you have a lot of people, you know, so many reasons of why people are not working. So originally it was because, you know, especially for people more, uh, uh, you know, on the lower, um, you know, on the lower income tadpole, you had over there people that they were making more money not working than working. So why work? They were getting unemployment and then they were getting an added bonus that the government was giving due to the COVID. So why go to work? 
And then you had people, even recently, where people left their jobs. Why? Because they were forced to take the COVID vaccine. They were forced to that. They didn't want to go. They didn't want to be ejected. So now they're saying, so people now are more bored than ever. They're more, they're stuck at home for the past two years. Who knows what's going on? And what's interesting is that more sins are happening. There are different studies that were done on different websites that were visited during these times. And it's very interesting when people are bored. People have nothing to do. They end up doing sins. They end up going and, and, and doing nonsense. The Gemara in Exubus goes and says, page 59b goes and says that even if a woman gets married to a family that's very, very wealthy and the family provides all the maidservants, all the help that they need and she doesn't, you know, like doesn't have to lose a finger. Still, the Gemara says that she should, do, she should do work herself. Why? Because free time leads to insanity and immorality. It drives you crazy and it makes you do certain sins. It may, you know, your mind gets, gets big. But if you're too busy, you can't, fall, you can't fall into different sins. Human beings in general are not built for unemployment. I know it's hard to say this for, in the projects, but the truth of the matter is, is that human beings are not built for unemployment. Idlenessness, sitting and doing nothing, laziness does not cause happiness. On the contrary, it causes misery. You have people that they don't sit and they don't do anything all day. What do they have? To, what do they? What do a lot of these people have to end up dealing? Either they're on, you know, drugs through a doctor, antidepressant, anti-anxiety, whatever it is, or they're on their own type of drugs, whether it's you know marijuana, heroin, whatever it is that they get to. They they, they feel like they're they're not producing. When you're not producing, you feel bad. It's not good to not do. The best therapy is get busy. Get yourself busy. And unfortunately, we live in a world that people, you know, I guess it's unfortunate and unfortunate. People, we have a lot of free time on our hands, which is good and bad. Again, I don't, uh, you know, you know, Baruch Hashem, whoever has free time, you know, great. That's, that's great that you don't have to go and stress out over these things. But you have to be careful. What do you do with this free time? Are you going and are you, you know, utilizing it to grow? Are you learning? Are you doing chesed? Or are you doing it to fall down, to fall into sin? Now, may HaKadosh Baruch give all of us extra amount of free time. But we have to realize, we have to stop for a second and try to the hardest, the best that we can, the best of our ability to utilize that free time for the positive, not for the negative. Because if you use that free time for the negative, then it falls into a very, very, very bad trap that goes into whether it's sin and also you're losing out the pleasures of this world even. The purpose of life is to live life, to experience life, not to view life from a tablet, not to view life from a cell phone, not to view life from, you know, sitting and just looking at your, at your phone all day or at your laptop all day. You're going, you know, you have people that are, you know, going on vacation. I remember, this is actually the truth. Is a little, I went once on vacation with my wife years and years ago. And... This is before, like, this is like right when, like, smartphones were starting to become more popular and people had it. And I remember we were traveling on a train and you had people, they were all on their laptops. And it was, you know, like a European, like, countryside. It was beautiful sights to see. And everybody was all focused on their, on their, on their tablets, on their computers, on their laptops, on their phones. Nobody was able to go and, and appreciate life for what it had to offer. People go on vacation. And I'm not saying that, it's something, you know, something that's very important. But what do they do on the vacation? They sleep in, they eat in, and they just sit in the room all day. If you're going on vacation, experience the vacation, experience life. Again, okay, fine, some people just want to be lazy and that's how they rejuvenate. Fine, okay, whatever it is. I can't, uh, well, I could say, but I shouldn't. 
but you're going in your life, experience it. You're going to, you're going to see a European, don't sit in your hotel room. See Marabu Masach Hashem, all the great things that Kedush Baruch Hu gave. Again, what's even better, unless you're sitting in the hotel room and you're sitting and learning all day, fine, then you're doing the right thing. But if you're anyways wasting time, and you're anyways doing that, at least see the wonders of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Appreciate, live life. Life is not meant to be lazy and to sit at home all day. Life is meant to live. In the olden days, there was no such thing as microwave dinners. There was no toasters. There was no such thing as TV dinners. They had, the, they, I don't know if they saw it now, I remember, you know, back when there were a lot, a lot more brick and mortar stores, you saw these, uh, it was like, it's meant for couches, these like tables that um, you could sit on your couch and watch your TV, watch your movie, whatever it is, and eat dinner. And this was the, the, old, the you know, olden days, you know, like you couldn't, there's no such thing as like that. You can't like sit and watch, you know, two cows fight. You had to, you had, if you want to go and make food, you can't throw it into the microwave, throw it into the oven. You had to buy raw materials and you have to cook it yourself. Women were busy from morning to night dealing with these types of things. And sometimes if you go back farther enough, they have to go and they have to even sew their own clothing. They were so busy. Men had to work so hard in the olden days. They collapsed. There was no machines to help you. It was manual labor and you had the animals helping you work. Men worked very hard. Women worked very hard. You know what's interesting? Suicide rate was very low back then. Why? Who's got time for suicide? No one's got time for that. He's like, I'm exhausted. You can't even stop the thing. Having too much time causes so much misery if you don't utilize it properly. The Gemara Ksuvis, page 59b, goes and says that one of the reasons that Akadosh Baruch did this was that we should realize that we should, there's a purpose of us being in this world. There's a purpose. We're meant to accomplish something. And if we go and we're sitting and we're idle, you know, like wasting our time, we're not accomplishing what we need to. We're not happy when we're sitting and doing nothing. Where are we the most happy when we're productive, when we're effective, when we're efficient, when we're able to accomplish? That's when we feel happy. That's when we feel satisfied. That's when we feel like we're accomplishing something. And the reason is because this is the purpose of us being in this world that we need to go and accomplish. And the focus is really not on the physical. The focus that we need to accomplish is on the spiritual. There was a guy in prison that was going out of his mind. You know, like he was bored out of his mind. He was like driving the guards crazy until finally the guards said, fine, you know what? They brought him to another room and they had there a certain wheel. And he had to go and he had to do a certain thing to this wheel and he had to move it around a certain way and move it back a certain way. And that was his job day in and day out. And he said, okay, fine, you know, I'm sitting in prison for who knows how long, but at least I'm doing something. At least I'm accomplishing something in my life. And he goes and he is, you know, he's satisfied. Years go by and he gets freed from prison. And they show him what he's been doing all this time. He thought maybe he's like, yeah, I don't know, he's grinding flour. Who knows what he's doing? And he goes and they show him that the wheel was attached to nothing. He was literally just grinding the air. And when he saw that, he collapsed. He's like, what? He's like, I did nothing for the past 20 years? He felt like, in order to feel happy, in order to feel satisfied, in order to feel good about yourself, you have to feel like you're accomplishing. And in many times, it's hard to feel that you're accomplished. Remember speaking to somebody, somebody who worked in, in, in the sales department of, in, in his business. And uh, in order to make money, you have to go out. And, and a lot of times when you try to make a sale, you don't always succeed. And they feel like, okay, so I just wasted all this time. 
And that happens a lot in the physical world. When you're trying to do something and you don't succeed, you feel like you failed. Sometimes, yes, it really is. You failed, maybe. Other times, no. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's an opportunity for growth. Maybe it's an opportunity. And how will you go when you gain from this? But the interesting thing is when you go in spirituality, and let's say you try something spiritually, and you don't succeed, that's not a fail. You may have not gotten to the highest level that you need to, but at least you started off something. When you go to a sales pitch and you start off speaking and you put yourself out there and you put yourself, make yourself vulnerable and you get turned down, what do you have to show for that? Nothing really. If you're smart, you're able to take away some lessons and implement that in your next sales pitch. But when you go spiritually and you try something and you fail, you have that trial period. That part that you tried, that's something that's on your record. That's something that you gained. In the physical world, when you want to do something, you have to work for it. If you want to eat bread, you can't, well now you could just buy it. But if let's say you lived in the field, you can't just, bread doesn't just grow. You have to grow the grain and then you have to plow it and then you have to remove the thorn. There's like so many processes until you finally get to the final final product, the, the bread. Now if you have somebody that buys bread in the store, like amazing bread, like the best bread, whether it's sourdough, pretzel, pretzel, sourdough, whatever it is, like the best bread that you could possibly think of. And then you have somebody else who goes and has a field and they planted the grain and then they plowed it and then they sowed it and then they raped it and then they did everything, all the process and they put it and they turned it into flour, they ground it and then they finally baked it and they're, they're both eating this, this piece of bread. One person, it's his own bread that he baked from scratch or she really baked from scratch and you have another person that bought the most delicious bread. Who enjoys the bread more? And I'll tell you straight off the bat, the sourdough, whatever it is, pretzel challah bread, that is a thousand times better than what the person worked for it. But who enjoys the bread more? Who derives more hanah and more pleasure? The person that worked so hard, they're the ones that they're enjoying so much more, even though the other one tastes better. Why? Because people enjoy the toil of their hands. They enjoy the work that they have. Labor sweetens the product. A person generally should, to a certain extent, love themselves. And they love everything that is associated with them. And so to that, they love everything that comes from the labor that they come from that. And that's why the Gemara Bava Mitzia, page 38a, goes and says that a person prefer, prefers one kav. One uh, kav is like a, a measurement, a quantity. They prefer one kav as a, of their own hard work to somebody else's nine kavim. If somebody else has nine measurements and you have one measurement, but your measurement you worked hard for, you appreciate, you enjoy that one measurement so much more. There is a drive to seek this fulfillment. We know that we have this fulfillment. And we try to, to seek this in all different areas. Whether it's making money, whether it's traveling on different vacation, and it's not enough that now we were able to get to Mars, now, we have to, now we're able to get to the moon, now we have to figure out how to get to Mars. And we have all these extravagant vacations that we want to go into outer space. You want to take a cruise around the world. You want to go scuba dive with the alligators and the dolphins in the same part because it's not enough that you did one and the sharks, but now you have to put two of them together. And we think this is where we're going to get our enjoyment from. But really, what human beings seek most is a connection to the divine. That's why you have these rabbis, that they're most happiest people in the world. Why? Because they're connected to something that is the sole purpose of being here. 
They got it. They figured it out. They figured out what the purpose is. They figured out what we had. What is the real purpose, the real happiness, the real drive, the real success for this world? Every morning we go out and we decide we're going to go to work. And we sit all day and we turn that wheel like that prisoner. And we're sitting and we're thinking, this wheel is going to give me the dollar bills, it's going to give me the food, it's going to give me my vacation, it's going to give me my luxury, it's everything that I want to, wanted. But really it's not that. Really the money comes from where? The money comes from this Rahu. We turn the wheel, but that's not where the money comes from. The money comes because this Baruch went and said that you're going to get a certain amount of money. Yes, we have to do our Shadud, but we're sitting over there and the money's going to come from whatever angle it comes from. So you have people that they're sitting and they're working. But then at times when they have to go and pray. And let's say if it's a man, they have to go with the Minyan, they have to go Davin Betzibur. So they stop and they go travel to go on Davin Betzibur. And after Davin, let's say they go and they sit and they learn a little bit. Chazal tells us that with the more time that we spend on our spiritual pursuits, the less time we have to spend on that wheel. The more a person takes upon themselves the yoke of Torah, they're free from other kinds of responsibilities. Yes, we do have that responsibility. And yes, it is beneficial because we do have the greatest enjoyment from it. But when you're dealing with how much, the more that you focus on the spiritual, the less that you have to focus on the physical. Rabbi Asher Zalik Rubenstein brought this. I know we're getting a little bit late. Uh, bear with me a little bit more. Rabbi Asher Zalik Rubenstein went and he gave, gave this uh, you know, great you know, analogy. Mashal. There was uh, once a boy. And this boy, his name was Spoiled Rotten Brat. I don't know why his parents named him that. For whatever reason, you know, the last name was Brat. They decided to name him Spoiled Rotten. So Spoiled Rotten over here was not a good student, but his parents, you know, had a lot of money. You know, they come from the Rotten family, a big, very, very wealthy to do family. And uh, the, Roth, the, uh, the, the Brat family, I'm sorry, not the Rotten family, Rotten was from his grandfather. So the spoiled Rotten Brat, the Brat family, they had a lot of money and they decided that they're going to pay the teachers to give them good grades. So starting from first grade, the kid didn't know how to read, was eating chocolate all day, making a mess, and they were going to make him repeat. Father goes in to the teacher and says, listen, you know, how much that we can make this go away? How does a vacation to Hawaii sound? They're like, well, a teacher going on vacation for Hawaii? I can't afford that. Just don't worry about it. He slips them down two tickets and be like, you know, go to Hawaii. You had a very hard time with my son. I'm sure he did a good job, but, you know, go to Hawaii. Be like, oh, yeah, oh, for sure. Report card comes, final report card, A plus down the line. Second grade, same thing replays itself. Third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. Finally, this kid is like the worst kid, but he's like getting A's on like everything. Finally, the kid is about to graduate high school. The kid is at this point 300 pounds, you know, full of pimples from all the oil and the chocolate that he's been eating. And everybody's been telling him he looks amazing because the parents pay him off. And the father goes over to the principal and says, you know, can my son, you know, my son's got old A's. Can he uh, be valedictorian? So the principal starts laughing and be like, what? Like, we all know. I mean, we don't say anything because, like, you know, like, obviously you don't say anything. But, like, we all know your son, you know, I don't think he can read. You know, like, you know, like you want him to be valedictorian? There's, like, no way you're going to be valedictorian. And the father goes by, look, look at his report cards throughout the years. A on everything. He should be valedictorian. And the guys, the principal's like, you got to be out of your mind. This kid hasn't studied a day in his life. The kid doesn't know right to left. He can't, we can't make him valedictorian. There's no way. There's no way that this kid will ever be valedictorian. Guaranteed, my word, this kid is never being valedictorian. 
The father goes, how does $200,000 sound? The principal's like, who, for the valedictorian? Of course he signed for the valedictorian. Like, what? You know, like, yeah, of course he's going to be valedictorian. Like, why wouldn't he be? Look at his grades. He's got a 100 across the board. Of course he's valedictorian. He's like, what I said before? What are you talking about? I didn't hear anything before. He's like, you heard that? I didn't hear anything before. I was like, I didn't say anything. He's a great kid. Great kid. My checking count is right over here. You know, like, you go over there and be like, oh, now this kid is a valedictorian. He gets up over there, gives his speech of valedictorian, waddles onto the, you know, the stage, sits over there, starts giving the speech. The whole school boos him because everybody knows how he got there. Daddy paid him through. The Brat family paid him through to go in. And... The boy goes and says, uh, you know, afterwards gets uh, interviewed by, you know, one of the teachers. Be like, so how was it? You know, like, because he got booed at the same point in time. And, you know, all the students are sitting all around and listening to him. And he says, I don't care that they booed me. He says, I got the valedictorian honor. He says, you all did it. I got it. Now, imagine, you know, this is how he feels. Now, imagine the principal didn't take this bribe. Imagine there's another young student. This young student, his first name was Diligent, comes from the family of Motivated. So diligent, motivated, this boy worked so hard his entire life. He comes a family of motivated, you know, they're, they're very motivated people. And he's working very, very hard his entire life. And he goes and he comes from something very low and he becomes a valedictorian. And he gets up over there and the crowd starts cheering, motivated, motivated, whatever it is, right? They, uh, they go and they cheer him nonstop. Who is going to feel better? The person that worked so hard and achieved what they achieved? Mr. Diligent? Or would it be spoiled rotten brat? Who would have the better feel? They both achieved the same pleasure at the end of the day. They both came to the same conclusion. But who is going to go and who is going to appreciate it more? And we know that the people, that the person that went and worked hard for it. We are put in this world to work hard. We are put in this world not only to work hard in the physical manner. In fact, that's not really the focus. The focus that we are put in this world is to work hard on our spiritual matters. That is what explains Rabbi Obi. This is where we're supposed to be focusing on in the spiritual matter. And this is where we're going to get the most, the most, the most pleasure that we have, that we can, is where we utilize that and we grow and we, and we change ourselves of who we are. Let's put a little bit of a recap over here. We'll close it off because it's getting late. We know that there are two reasons why we're required to work. One of them is the test. And when you're dealing with the test of life, and we barely spoke about this, and really this was really the focus that should have been for the class, is the test of money. When you go and you look in the Gemara in Shabbat, page 31, it goes and says that when a person dies, one of the first questions that they're going to be asked is, Nasata Venasata Be'emunah. Did you deal honestly in business? Why is it that money is the first thing that comes up over there? It doesn't say, did you keep Shabbat? It doesn't say, did you keep kosher? It doesn't say, did you pray? Obviously, those are all going to be questions that have to be asked. And don't get me wrong, those are super, super important. But the first question is, did you deal in business honestly? Did you deal faithfully in business? Because somebody who doesn't think that, or maybe they think that they can make their own money stealing, gambling, whatever it is in another way, then they don't realize that Hashem is the one that's providing them. And people tend to mess other people over when it comes to money. There's a very famous saying 
The famous saying, it's nothing personal, it's just business. Ever heard of this? Nothing personal, just business. Every, you know, who, who usually says this? When someone messes you over, they say, by the way, nothing personal, just business. You know who termed this, who, who coined this term? It was a person by the name of Otto Biederman. Otto Biederman was known as Otto Abadaba Berman. He was a math genius, early 1900s. Um, he was able to do complex mathematical equations in, in his head, like instantly. And he ended up becoming an accountant for the mob. How he died was very, you know, tragic. He ended up getting assassinated. It was in, they say he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was with one of the mob bosses, and the mob bosses got assassinated. And he was there also, and he got assassinated as well. But he came up with the saying. This is where the saying came up with. It's nothing personal. It's just business. And what do you mean it's nothing personal? Let's say you steal. You're a mob. You're a mobster. You're taking money away from other people. Don't tell me it's not personal. Of course it's personal. I worked hard for this money. My blood, sweat, and tears went to this money. And you just took it away? So why would they go and they come up with a saying, it's nothing personal, it's just business. Because when you're dealing with the test of money, it blinds people. The Pasuk in Shemot, chapter 23, verse 8. It says, A person is not allowed to take accept a bribe. Uh, the bribery will blind those that are clear-sighted. And corrupt the words of the righteous, those that are right. Money tends to corrupt. And when you get corrupted, during this test, you can't, you know, why, why did this Otto Abadaba Berman come up with this saying? Because he wasn't doing what was right. But it wasn't, you know, like, he had to come with a certain saying, like, wait, I can't be this cognitive dissonance, I can't just be a bad person. So they became with the saying, it's not personal, it's just business. Of course it's personal. Of course it's something that's personal. Although you can say from today till tomorrow. But it's personal. It's a test that you had. Don't tell me it's just business. There's no such thing as it's just business. How many people, you know, have I dealt through over the years that they did such sketchy, shady things and said, Rabbi, it's just business. No, I'm like, that's not just business. That's you being twisted. Business, there are many, many people in, in the business world that deal honestly. And they don't have to do sketchy things or fraudulent things. But it's a test. Like anything else in life, money is a test. And money is a huge test. In fact, I, I would venture to say well, money is one of the biggest tests. And how we deal with money. How we deal with that. I would say up there is the relationships test that we spoke about. So number one, as a recap that we're doing, the reason why we have to work is a test. It's a test in our life and how we're going to interact. Number two, says the Chavos of Avot, to keep a man busy. Because when you're busy, you're not doing any sin. But if let's say you have a tzad, you have a righteous person, that they have a desire to go and serve God and, they don't, and, and they're going to do what's right and they're always going to be focused and they don't need, they don't need these two tests, meaning if they're above that, then the Kaddish Baruch is going to go and gonna take care of them. If one commits to learning Torah, Hashem will support them. And he, he's not going to get detracted from sin and things like that. He'll be focused on his spiritual pursuit. The Klausenberger Rebbe goes and, and, and he started this like, um, you know, group, I guess you could say, where they were challenged to learn 70 blot per month. 70 blot is a, 70 pages of Gemara per month, which is a lot. And it's Gemara, Rashi, and Tosas together, not just the Gemara. And every two months they have to review 210 blot. So somebody goes, it's a tremendous amount of information. Somebody went and asked the rabbi, he says, Rabbi, he says, do you think they're going to be able to comprehend that amount of knowledge in such a short period of time? So the rabbi smiled at them and says, what makes you think the purpose is for them to know the information? He says, the purpose for them here is to keep them busy so they won't sin. 
He says, I made this crazy program so people will be very busy and they won't be able to sin. That is an attest in itself to be busy, to not let yourself fall into sin. Rav Chatzka Levenstein never took a vacation. It's a level. Rabbi Victor Miller never took a vacation. He always just say, you have to keep busy. Even Rabbi Liashev, unless he took vacation, he went to Bayit Vagan. You know what his vacation consisted of? He learned 18 hours a day in one location as opposed to the other location. So you know what I don't know what the rabbi vacation was? Is that he did exactly the same thing, just in a different location, maybe it was a little bit nicer weather, maybe a little bit of more fresher air, and that's where he learned nonstop. Rabbi Miller, Rabbi Victor Miller used to tell people that he was busy studying for a test. And they would ask him, what, what test are you studying for? And he says, my final test. My test that Hashem is going to ask me after 120 to see what I learned and what I accomplished while I was alive. This is the view of some people. Other people study for their tests in Harry Potterville. And how much, and they read the books again and again and again to review it, just in case they get tested, whatever reason, I don't know. Why I have, and why I say that, because I don't know, I have spoken to people, and, and I remember I spoke about this like years ago, and it's still stuck in my mind, where, where I spoke to somebody, and, and they tell me they read Harry Potter, I'd be like, didn't you read them? Like, this book came out years ago, they didn't read this when you were a kid? Be like, yeah, but no, I read it, uh, you know, I review it. I was like, you review it? What are you reviewing for? Who's testing you in Harry Potter? Who's te- and you have people, again, okay, it's in their enjoyment, this is their time, whatever it is, I'm not getting to that, but like, this is what you're studying for? Rabbi Victor Miller, you know what he's studying for? He's studying for the test that I could who's going to test him. I could guarantee you, and a lot of things I can't guarantee, but one thing I can't guarantee is that when you get up after 120, they're not going to ask you which house you belong to. And again, I'm going back on my knowledge. I may be wrong. Are you going to be Gryffindor or Slytherin or whatever it was? You, that, that's not what they're asking you on what Harry said to Sally or what this said to that. They're not asking you these questions. You don't need to be tested on this. But you will be tested on something. And that test comes to you every single day. Through different relationships. Through your Different siblings, your parents, your coworkers, your workers, like all your life is a life full of tests. And the questions that are going to be asked after 120 is how did you pass that test? And it's not enough to say, I knew what I was supposed to do, but I couldn't. I couldn't control myself. I had the information up here intellectually. I knew what I was supposed to do. That's not enough. We have to take the knowledge that we have. We have to take the information that we know we need to do and implement into an emotional knowledge that it becomes ingrained in us that we do it without even thinking. That the next time we come across a test, a test that goes and pushes us to our limits, we're dealing with a stingy person, a stubborn person, an angry person, a happy person, an unhappy person, and we know how to interact, we know how to go and to greet everybody, we know how to interact with all our relationships. And also we know how to interact when we're dealing with money situations. So my blessing to all of you, and then we'll open up to questions, is that whatever HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends our way, we don't ask for tests, we don't want tests, and we have no interest in tests. But if HaKadosh Baruch Hu does send tests our way, may HaKadosh Baruch Hu not only give us the knowledge and how to pass that test, but help us implement into our emotional knowledge to overcome all these tests. And then after 120, when we come up and we actually get tested to see what we, how we accomplish we could come and we could say that we aced every single test that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given us. Okay, let us open up the questions. 
All right. If we all know, first question. Um, if we, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So what you were saying about ingraining it, right? The, the emotional aspect of it. Um, so, so I'm not talking about like the past with other people, but what happens? Like, like how do you make sure that that the ingraining it like emotionally doesn't become a routine? So let's say, so, so let's first speak about why is it bad if it's a routine? Let's say you're ingrained in yourself to be like an amazing person. And it becomes routine to you that you're an amazing person. Like someone can scream. No, no, no. Like, like if it, it's a routine, like, like you're not thinking about it anymore and it's not really, really important. Like, like it's, it's just something that you do. Like, like not, not like as a bad thing, but you don't think about it. It's like a your actions, it's not supposed to be just something that. You're saying not that you ingrain the good part about it, but you ingrain the, it's the, like the habit, the habit the of it. Habit. So, so that really, the question really is, is that how do you how do you change your habit and how do you how do you make it into like a positive habit, right? Is that where you're going at? Um, I don't think I'm saying. Um, basically, it's like just going through the motion instead of you know, let's say it's like becoming like a good person. Now it's in the action of what a good person. Does, but you're not actually internalizing it every time you do it. So your question is, how do you internalize it? Yeah. Oh, okay, fine. Oh, okay. So, so the, so I'll explain to you the way and the reason and how I and why we've been speaking about Amuna for so long. So, certain topics, you could have the information intellectually, but in order to ingrain it inside of you. You have to implement inside of you. So sometimes you need to like hear the same things again and again until it becomes part of you. And the way that this is the way that doctors learn to become doctors. This is the way that soldiers learn to become soldiers. Where they do it so many times and they work on themselves so many times and they're focusing so many times that they don't need their brain to function at the hundred percent. You know, obviously they should, but they're able to do their job when their brain is not at full capacity. They're exhausted. They're tired. They're able to do it because it's ingrained in them. How do they get it ingrained in them? They're doing it nonstop around the clock. They're going. A soldier in order to become a soldier in the training process, it's you know it's it's so like it's crazy what they have to do. They have to go and they, they put a knapsack full of rocks and they're running nonstop. They have to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and then the next day at 5 o'clock in the morning and the next day at 4 o'clock in the morning. They sleep two hours a day and they have to do all these different exercises. Why do they push them to their brain? Because they make them become part of them. You have doctors that are literally on call for you know 48 hours straight. They sleep in a hospital. And they're become, like again, it's not the healthiest thing, it's not the best thing because they could make a mistake because of that. But they train them to a certain point that they're able to do it without thinking. So if you want to ingrain it in yourself something, if you want to train in yourself something, if you want to implement in yourself something, and you're taking that information and making it an emotional and emotional knowledge, it's something that you have to do again and again. And you have to be a little bit obsessed about it, at least initially. You have to put through yourself through that training period. If something becomes a routine, though, then isn't it like every time you do it? It's supposed to be like a fresh thing, though, every time you do it. No, if you so so yes in a certain sense, but if you're able to go and make the difficulty into let's say somebody has a difficulty in um, anger, let's say let's say somebody's suffering from an anger issue, and they work on themselves to the point that it becomes a routine that they're not angry anymore, that is a win. That's not something negative. That's something that they were they actually excelled in and they were good. And yes, they will get reward for that even though they 
what ordinarily they would have gotten angry for. Now they're not angry because they change their personality. They get reward for that. So becoming habitual in certain things is not a bad thing. Obviously our service to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, our service should always not be habitual. But if you're able to go and make it for the positive aspect, meaning that, like, let's say habitually you just daven with a lot of kavanah. Like you're just zoned in there, like that's your habit. There's nothing wrong with that. Where it becomes the problem, the negative terminology of habitual is when you do it without thinking. So that can be problematic only in certain areas. Let's say you don't get angry because you ingrained it into you, you don't even have to think about it anymore. You used to be an angry person, you worked on yourself so hard that it became so habitual from you that now you don't become angry. Like you just worked on yourself. That's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. Is that clear? Um, yeah, but, but that's just when, like, like, you're fixing a bad habit, right? But when it when it comes to adding on a new good habit, couldn't that be an intellectual thing every time you do it? It starts off that way, yeah. It starts off an intellectual until it becomes an emotional thing. So then once it's an emotional thing and it's something that you do automatically, shouldn't each time you do it be a fresh thing and that happens when you think about what you're doing? So, so let's say, so yes, in certain scenarios, that's a great point. So, so shouldn't it be always be a fresh thing? So in certain situations, yes. But let's utilize that in, in the angry example that we gave earlier. Let's say someone makes you angry. So you don't want it to be fresh, meaning that you're about to get so angry and you work on yourself and you calm yourself down. So you get angry inside, but you don't let that out and you bring yourself down and now you're not angry anymore and now you're able to respond the right way. So that is like definitely a pass, a check test. Like you, you, you scored on that. You were, you know, somebody made you angry. You got angry. You were able to calm yourself down. You didn't respond in the right way. You worked on yourself and now you're not angry anymore. That is great. That is something that you did. You focused on it. It wasn't habitual. You had to work hard on it. But you do this time and time and again. And eventually, the person made you tried to make you angry. And what would have made you angry three weeks ago or three months ago or three years ago or 30 years ago for that matter, now all of a sudden, you don't become angry in it because you ingrained it inside of you that it doesn't. you don't even get angry from it. So that in itself, what is greater? What is a greater level that you achieved? When someone makes you angry and you work on yourself to go and you're not angry anymore and you overcome that test, or somebody tries to make you angry and what would have made you angry before now no longer makes you angry because it became habitual to you and now you'd be able to go and not even get angry, not even uh, you know get into that test. Of course. But, yeah, go ahead. Um, so, but that's just like, like fixing something that 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 happens, you react and you're trying to stop that reaction. Now, what if it's something that you're adding on? Like, either way, right now, you're doing it. There's two times you want to add on, um, let's say, being more grateful. And so now it's just like a habit thing to say, um, thank you, Hashem, something, when something good happens. But if it's not something that's, if that's something that just happens, like, like when something good happens, thank you, Hashem, that was amazing, but can you internalize that every time it happens? It's not just something like, so maybe I'm not getting your question correctly. So, so you're saying that let's say for the gratitude. So, when you're if you get habitual for gratitude, then you just appreciate everything as opposed to internalizing every appreciation that you have. Yeah. So, it depends on. I hear what you're saying. So that's a good question. So, so let's say somebody goes and is a very grateful person. And it becomes habitual, they're just grateful. As opposed to where it's not habitual, their gratitude, and they realize and they utilize every gratitude 
for its full force. Right? Yeah. Okay. So the answer is, is really in the question. And that is that if somebody really worked on gratitude, then gratitude doesn't become habitual. That means that they're not grateful if it's habitual. Because in order to have gratitude, that means that you feel that gratitude every single time. That, that means that if you become, if let's say somebody's always grateful to Hashem, and it says non-stop thank you to Hashem, but they don't feel any different because they're just saying thank you to Hashem all the time, then they're not feeling that gratitude, it's just becoming habitual. Then it's not gratitude, it's just words. So if it, in order for it to work, it actually has to come and implement inside of you. So I, I think where I, I understand where this confusion is, is that where you're dealing with a positive thing versus a negative thing. So gratitude, for example, or anything positive for that matter, you have to go and you have to feel the difference. But the negative of those things, let's say the anger, the higher level is not to feel it. That's the goal to get it. The gratitude, the positive, the higher level is to feel it. The negative, the higher level is not to feel it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. So, but the thing is, by, by feeling it, you're thinking about it. So for the gratitude, that's an intellectual process where you're thinking about it. Everything starts, okay, so everything starts off intellectual. We have to realize that everything starts off intellectual and only then goes into the emotional. The difference is, is that sometimes it's intellectually stimulating for like a second or two and then it goes straight to the emotions and sometimes you know it, it lingers on longer so everything always starts intellectually the question is where what are you doing with that knowledge are you letting it into your emotions are you putting it into emotional knowledge or are you just leaving it as an intellectual knowledge and you're not following up on any through on that act that makes sense okay, okay. Good? Okay, Baruch Hashem. Okay, let's, then we have here a question, another question that came in in, front, in the chat. If we know all that Hashem does good on an intellectual level, but emotionally we're upset, does that mean our Muna is lacking? Like, if our Muna was strong enough, would our emotions be matching our intellect? So that's a great question. So, if we know everything that a Baruch Hu does on intellectually is good, but we get upset, and it's only natural, we get upset because we're human. So, does that mean that our Muna is lacking because we got upset? So to a certain point, yes, but I have to define upset. So let's say something bad happened and you're sad. You're, you're going through something that's different than upset. So let's say, God forbid, someone lost a loved one. So they shouldn't be happy because this is what God wanted. And obviously this is all for the best, and, you know, that, that whole spiel. Of course, yes to all of those, but you're still going through a sad emotion. You're still going through sad and it's fine and it's, sometimes it's allowed and sometimes it's very appropriate and sometimes it's required to be sad. To go through the, the mourning process. So that's not, that's not a, a lacking of a muna. But if let's say something happened and, um, not in that area. Let's say, you know, I don't want to give an example, any example that you could think of. Um, and we are upset on that. Generally speaking, our, our emotions should be corresponding to our level of Ramuna. And if we would be on a higher level of Ramuna, we wouldn't have that level of upsetness unless it's warranted in certain situations. If it's not warranted, then yes, the Ramuna is lacking or can be lacking depending on the situation. So, so yes, our Ramuna should be matching our emotions, which should be matching our intellect. But it's very hard. It's, that's a level. That's a level and a process to get to. Okay, and yes, then we have another comment regarding uh, eight, if 8,000 people are giving, that's 
almost $2.3 million in stock a year that you could be uh, a part of. And in fact, that is, we're talking about daily giving. So uh, in fact, daily giving, if you want to, um, if, you know, I can even see exactly what, what, the, what they're giving every single year. They're giving a tremendous amount of money. Like I can't understand why nobody's like jumping on it. Um, over the next year, there's almost $3 million being given, $2.9 million being given to, to Tzedakah that you could be a part of. Almost $3 million. It's crazy. I don't know why everybody's not jumping on it. Um, okay. Here we have another... Um, co- yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, so before you're talking about how like when we dive in, it's like it could be... It's different from emotionally and intellectually. Like sometimes you're like really into it and sometimes you're like, you know, normal. So how do you get from like really into it to like I mean like emotionally invested to like from your normal state because like sometimes when you're really emotional you ask for like a lot and you're really into it and then when you're not you kind of feel like you're in the emotional times you're you're only asking because you need something not because like you actually have a connection right so that's actually a very good question regarding like it's really it, the question really underlines in like having Kavana all the time as opposed to having Kavana when you really need something as opposed to when you don't need something so much, right? I'm assuming that's what your question is. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay, so the the idea behind it, so, so again, this is really a topic for tefillah in itself, because there's a lot to speak about it, but the idea behind tefillah is that when we, when we need something, so we sort of come to davening emotionally ready. Like, like we need something, so we're emotionally in the headspace to go and ask for something. When... We don't need something, and we feel like whatever. We're okay. We're just diving because we need to. Then our emotional investment towards it is not the same as when we need it. So how do we go and dive in always in the same level? It's not easy. It's hard because at one, you, you're you emotionally. Akedush Baruch just gave you the emotions to go uh, or the need to go and ask him for something. Now, now let's say you don't have that need, so your davening is very different. So one of the ways that our sages tell us that we're supposed to go is we're supposed to prepare before davening. How do we prepare before davening? One of the things is that we have to uh, we have to we have to concentrate and realize who we're standing in front of. We're standing in front of a Kaddish Baruch Hu who can give us everything. And that's why it's very beneficial not to just start davening right away. It's to get yourself in the emotional headspace of where you need to be when you daven. So what's always beneficial, and it's a work, it really is a work, is that before you daven, you give yourself a minute, two minutes, even 30 seconds of just like a mental preparation of what you're about to do. Because if you just jump into something then chances are you're not going to be as, you know, concentrating as the kavana that you have. But if you're mentally preparing yourself, then you're going to be at a different level. When you're in an emotional bad state and you go into davening, you're already prepared. You have that emotional charge over there. If you're not in that headspace, then you, don't ha- then you have to create that to a certain way. And I'm not saying you should put yourself in a sad situation, but you have to put yourself in a situation of realizing who you're standing in front of. You're standing in front of Melech Malchi Amlochem HaKadosh Baruch The one that gives you, takes away from you, everything comes from one source and that's from HaKadosh Baruch The more that we can comprehend for it, the more that we could go and, and start to, to understand who we're speaking to, what we're dealing with, and that will help us put ourselves into that headspace. Again, there's a lot of different, you know, exercises that we need to do before davening, but that's one of the main ones, if I could say. Okay, also, like a little bit of follow-up. 
Like, I feel like when we're driving Smart SRA compared to when we're driving, like, Astray or Yustaba, when we're driving Smart SRA, we're, like, more in the zone. And, like, how do you get that for, like, the entire um, davening? So there's different... So that's a great question. There's a different levels of, of tefillah in itself. So we know the Shemana Esrei is, is, is one of the highest ones. This is the ones that we could connect to also, to, to the most. I, from, from a psychological aspect, one of the reasons that people connect to Shemana Esrei more is, number one, because they know that that's a very high-level one. And maybe they don't feel that the other prayers are, are on as, a, as in a high level. So... What you want to go and you want to try to realize that all davening has a tremendous amount of power. Pesuket Dezirma has a men- tremendous amount of power. But we rush through it because we are, maybe we don't realize that. Or maybe we're just late and we're just trying to get through it. But if you realize the power of something, then the, you're going to be able to concentrate about something, about, about it more. When you're focused on Shemana Esrei, you know the power of it, so you're able to concentrate more. But another reason is also in Shemana Esrei, we ask for personal things. Pesuket Dezirma, we started giving praises. It's it's less about asking. When when it becomes personal, then we're able to focus more. So it's easier to focus on it. So I believe that's also another reason why Shemoneser becomes more of a focus on people. But the bottom line is, if you want to make the whole feel more meaningful to you, you got to learn what you're saying. You got to realize the power that it has. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Of course. The next question, or oh, uh, it might be a comment. The night that, oh, here's an, another comment about daily giving. The night that I su- subscribed to dailygiving.org, I was approached with a job offer that would be an easy job paying back almost exactly the value that I would have been donating over, over the year. Look at that. You can't get it where you're able to go and just like get, you know, the second that you start something and Hashem just like pays you back. How like awesome is that? That's like a good Israel, like literally just like giving you a kiss and be like, hey, by the way, good job. Okay, what are some ideas to prepare for handling emotional moments with our intellect? So, it's very difficult to intellectually deal with an emotional moment at that time. You have to prepare for it beforehand. And one of the main underlining ways to deal with all these issues is Amuna. So, the more that one focuses on Amuna, and that's why this, this series, I feel, is super important even though not everybody thinks so, but I think it's extremely, extremely important this year is because this is something that you have to prepare before the moments come up. So that when the moments come up, you're dealing with them the right way. So when you're going and when you're dealing with something that's, let's say, very emotionally driven towards one way, intellectually you know you have to be the other way. But it's hard for you because you're emotionally driven. But if you practice, if you work on that muscle, so, so think about it this way. It's a bad example of a muscle, but imagine you have two arms, which you do, hopefully, and one arm is extremely strong and another arm is more weaker. So when you have something that is, you know, you, you want to pull in and you, you obviously you use your stronger arm, you have a lot more strength in that. The weaker arm, you don't have that much strength in it because obviously it's weaker. So when you're dealing with something and emotionally you're in a bad state, but intellectually you know where you are, if your stronger arm is not able to pull that intellectual idea into the emotion, emotional area, you're going to fail in that. And many times we only have that weaker one. Why? Because we don't build so much our muscles in the emotional areas of when we're, we're struggling. 
We tend to build our emotional areas as it comes. We don't tend to focus on growing emotionally, at least, I guess for many people, I don't know. For some people they do, they go and they read psychological books and they go and they really grow in, in that area. But many people don't. So how are you going to go and deal with something that you're an emotionally charged area and you know what intellectually you have to do is you have to build that emotional power that you have. You have to build that intellectual power. It's a muscle. It's a muscle inside your head, so to speak, that you have to work on it. And the more that you work on it when you're not in this stressful environment, the more that you're going to be able to comprehend to handle it in the stressful environment. Okay, next question. When should a girl look out? What should, I'm sorry. What should a girl look out for when dating a guy who's working and has a desire for money? She's worried that he might be too much into business and money. This is a very difficult question. Very, very difficult because if a man is working, a man is very into money in general. Some women also, but men in general are very into money. Um, and, and, and you're right, because it is something that should be looked at, because sometimes men put money and business over their wives, over their families, over everything else, and that becomes a problem. But where it gets tricky is that a lot of men speak a lot about money, and they speak a lot about you know work and, and what they need to do, and they have a very, very strong focus on it. So where do you go, and how do you differentiate? And the reason why I'm, I'm nervous to say one thing over another is because a lot of people are falling in this category. And I don't want to tell you one thing. If you say, if you see someone say this, run away. Because not necessarily. A lot of people are in that category. And sometimes one person may throw their family for money, but another person may not. So where would I draw the line? Is I would, I would focus on stinginess, which is not really the question that you asked, but it really will answer the, the, the underlining reason behind it. Stinginess is something that you have to be very, very careful if someone has a very strong desire for money and they're not able to share it. Number two, if their entire focus, their entire conversation, their entire life is only focused about money, then you should be wary. Um, again, not to say that you have to run other way. Sometimes for some people, yes. But that if, if someone solely focused their whole life is only about money, you have to be careful. You have to be careful. Look into it. I'm not saying run the other way. You have to just look into it. In general, though, if you're dating somebody and you're coming across a situation, I would say to speak to somebody before you break it off because sometimes it might be something, sometimes it might not be something. Okay, final question we have over here. How do you keep a Muna when a test seems to be never-ending or at least no end in the near future? That is a great question. So it's easy to keep a test when you know it's a short period of t- it's short test, you know, like it's very simple, you know, even if it's difficult. But you know, it's when you go to your parents, when you go to in-laws, when you go to your work, your boss, that's when you're having a test, and that's when you have to fo- focus on yourself. But what happens when you have a test that never seems to end? And unfortunately, this is very common, where a test just goes on and on, and it just never seems to end. How do you go, how do you deal with something like that? So, it's difficult. It's difficult and it's not, at this point, it's not enough only to just work on a Muna. You have to put in a lots and lots of tefillahs. And it's not only for the outcomes of the tefillah. That's a separate benefit. But really the, the benefit of a tefillah is opening up to HaKadosh Baruch Because when you feel like you have a test that's just going on and on, you're emotionally drained. You're tired out. You're burnt out. You can't handle it anymore. You need that connection to the divine. You need that connection to HaKadosh Baruch so even regard, of course, you you know you'll get answered. All the tefillahs get answered, but 
the tefillah in itself is a huge, huge, important, imperative requirement in this test. The other, te- the other thing that you need to work on is emuna in all aspects. So let me let me explain that. Uh, let's say somebody has a test in money. So they focus on on emuna in let's say money in money related things. And, and a lot of people. How do they, why do they choose to listen to certain classes? Because it sounds interesting and maybe they're going through something that they're going through and that's what they want to connect to and that's what they have questions to and that's what they want to grow in. But if you're going through a test that's continuous and all in like it's not stopping, it's not enough just to focus. So let's, let's give an example. Let's say it's a bad relationship and it seems like it's never ending and you just like can't. Or it's like money and it's just never ending and you just can't. It's not enough just to focus on building yourself in Amuna in money-related matters or in relationship-related matters. You have to build yourself in all aspects, meaning that you have to build yourself a foundation. So if you have something that's very, very pushing you very strong, you have to build a foundation very strong so you can fight it. It's not enough just to fight one-on-one. Picture somebody going at war, and there's one area that they can't conquer. It's not enough just to keep on fighting and fighting and fighting in the same area. If it's not working on, you have to branch out and you have to fight it from all different areas. You have to deploy other armies and get it from different angles. So if you're going through something that it feels like it's not ending, that means it's a very difficult test. So you have to implement that tefillah aspect of it. And you also have to implement the growing of yourself in Muna in all aspects. To build yourself that foundation and fight it from all different angles. I hope that answered all of the questions. Seems that that was... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, basically, I have a question on, like, Mashiach, I guess. So, we know that David Malach wasn't allowed to build the Mishnah Mekdash because Hashem said that you have so much blood in your hands, and one of the other ones was that if you build it and the Israel, you know, sins, then I'll have to destroy them because the Mishnah Mekdash would be, like, too holy because you built it. But the question is, like, why can't Hashem just, like, we know that now when Mashiach comes, Hashem's going to show his light to everyone and no one will be like, well, maybe I should show it for Zara. Everyone will just know. Why can't Hashem just do that two bits of this before this one? I, I, so you're saying why just not start off like... The question is why even... Let's start from the beginning. Why have this world in, to begin with? Let's just start. Let's just have Mashiach straight through. No, with, when when the first bits of this was built, why can't Hashem just show his glory already? Why can't Hashem what? Why can't I, I lost you there. Why can't Hashem show what? The first place to make so, this? When the first, very first reason why this was built in Shlomo Malach's time, why can't we just, by that time, there's no much this is built, we already established a connection with Hashem, why can't we just, like, Hashem just show everyone how, how Hashem, like, I don't know, the glory of Him. He did. What do you mean? There was a tremendous amount of miracles in the first place to make this. Hashem, show, the, the glory was very, very well known. I, I know, but we learned that, like, when when this Mashiach comes, there's gonna be like no sinning, no bazaar, like no nothing. Everyone will, it'll be so clear. So you're saying why wasn't the first base make this like that? Yeah. So okay, that, that uh, let me try to give the answer in short. So so the question is basically the real question really could summarize it is why if we would have the final base, why didn't we put instead of waiting to the final base of English, why not have the first base of English like the final base of English? Have the Hashem's glory, have the Hashem's, you know, like see, you know, the whole world will see that Hashem is the one true power and, the, you know, everybody would, won't do up with the Zara, right? That's your question? Yeah. Okay. So, there is a purpose for the world. And you're right, the purpose finalizes itself 
it's the epitome of the world, the, the finalized version of the, of the world is Mashiach. And that is the purpose of it. But why, in, in order to get to Mashiach, so, so let's first explain what happens when Mashiach comes. So Mashiach comes, the Gemara and Sukkah goes and tells us that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination is going to be shechted, it's going to be slaughtered. There's not going to be evil inclination anymore. Uh, well, at least to a certain extent. There is going to be, and, and once you get rid of evil inclination, there's also going to be less free will. Because why we have free will? Because we have two desires. We have the desire to do bad, and we have the desire to do good. So we have the free will, the free ability to go and decide whether we're going to do bad or whether we're going to do good. So Mashiach comes, there is going to be a utopian society, a utopian world, uh, but it's going to be coming on the price of the fact that now we don't have the free will aspect anymore. So... In order to understand Mashiach, we have to understand the purpose before Mashiach. We, when we are here, and one of the reasons why Mashiach is constantly being, you know, it seems like it's almost coming and then it gets pushed off a little bit more, is the aspect of free will. Before Mashiach comes, we have the ability to go and do good. And we will get rewarded for doing good. After Mashiach comes, that ability is not going to be any more a test. It's like... You know, somebody goes and says, you know, I am a, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a sports fan. Who are you a sports fan for? Whoever's winning. That's what I'm a sports fan for. So when you go and when you see the person's winning, it's easy to be a fan for that team because they're, they're winning. And the time Mashiach comes, there's not going to, it's going to be very obvious. And there's, there's a reason for that. And, there, and we'll get to that in a second. But it's going to be very obvious that the free will is not going to be here anymore. And the purpose, and, and this is so related to this class, because I, you know, I don't know if you thought this was off topic, because this is right on topic. The purpose of this world is for tests, and we have to grow and accomplish. Once Mashiach comes, those tests become much different, and less to a certain extent. So, the reason why we had the first base of Mikdash, the second base of Mikdash, and it wasn't to the full extent that we had, you know, in the final, in the final base of Mikdash, which once Mashiach comes, is because that we're still in the test process. We're still in the stage that we need to get tested. And then you're going to ask, well, why in the first base of Mikdash, let's say, there was more, you know, um, miracles in the second base of Mikdash? And there's a few reasons for that, but one of them being is that Zulum Azubar Alakim. The Pasuk and Kalas goes and tells us that everything Kaddish Baruch Hu created in a balance. When magic was very high, then prophecy was also very high. When you had, uh, you know, the, the different powers, then the spiritual also powers had to be implemented. Meaning that you had to go and you had to have an equal choice to do either bad or good. So even in the time of the first base of Midrash, where there was a tremendous amount of miracles, but those miracles were like, okay, well, yes, there are miracles, but there was also magic during that time, and it may, maybe it was magic. So you always had that free will. You always had that test. As the let's call it the dark arts, you know, lowered in a certain sense. That happened. Why did that happen? Because spirituality lowered. And everything was always on the same level. And this is the way that Rabbi, um, I believe it's Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky goes and explains it. It explains the, the idea of how come in the olden days we had magic and, the new, and now we don't have magic. How come in the olden days we had prophecy and now we don't have prophecy? Because the Kedush made everything in an equal playing field. Why an equal playing field? So you have a choice. So you have a choice either to do good or to do bad. And that is the purpose. The purpose is we have the tests. Once Mashiach comes, those tests are no longer the tests anymore. So what is the purpose of Mashiach then, if we're not te- getting tested anymore? So the way the Rabbi Akiva task goes and explains this beautifully, I forgot which, uh, which book, maybe Free Will book that he wrote this in, I've, but, but he explains it beautifully, the way it goes, as, and he goes and he explains, 
It says that when you have the concept of Shabbos, Shabbos, you can only prepare what, you can only utilize what you prepared before Shabbos. But Yom Tov, you're able to prepare a little bit. Shabbos, you can't cook, for example, but Yom Tov, you could cook a little bit. So before Mashiach comes, this is during the week. We could prepare, we could cook, we could do all the malacha we can. When it comes to the days of Mashiach, that's going to be like the, that's going to be like the Yom Tov era. Like, you could do certain stuff, but it's only the stuff that you prepared already during the week that you started helping yourself. So let me explain that, how, how it works. So once Mashiach comes, can we work on ourselves? Can we build ourselves? Is there free will anymore? And yes, to a certain extent. What can we work on ourselves? What can we build on ourselves? The things that we worked on before Mashiach comes, before the evil inclination, the Yitzhahar was shakta, to destroy, when we had that free will and we worked on certain things, we will be able to finalize it, to, to complete it to a certain extent once Mashiach comes. But people that didn't work on that, they won't have that, that, that ability to work on those things. So Mashi- the, Mashi- the era of Mashiach is an era where we can perfect the things that we started working on in this world. So there is a purpose for it, but there's a different purpose. I know this is a long answer to your question, but the reason, the really, the, the bottom line reason is that the purpose of the first base of Megdash, the second base of Megdash, wasn't, it was, it was a time that we still had free will and we needed to have free will and it's a time that we would grow and we would have that ability to grow. Mashiach time, it's a different test, a different, uh, a different focus. I don't know if that answered you. Yeah. This is like a bit of a like silly question, kind of. But like, if when Mashiach comes, let's say someone who's not like believes in Mashiach and like all that, obviously, but like not actively working on themselves, who would ever want Mashiach? Because in a sense, you can't ever like even if you're serving Hashem. Yeah, it's not like you free will. You see it; it's clear. Like now, it's an actual challenge. So like, who would want Mashiach if you could just now you can actually work on it and get scar? As in, like, then when you can't, but you kind of already are serving Hashem. Right. So then that's really is like, why do we want Mashiach? The real purpose of Mashiach is not for us. It's for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It's just that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, his name will be one. It's on that day he's going to be one, his name is going to be one. We don't want Mashiach. The, see, the problem is that people think Mashiach, okay, Mashiach is going to be reunited with my ancestors, with my, you know, lost, you know, family, you know, members, uh, you know, with my grandparents, whatever it is. And that's all right, correct, and fine, and whatever it is. But that's not the goal of Mashiach. The goal of Mashiach is not for you. It's to get to the point that it's for HaKadosh Baruch it's, it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu's world. And it's going to be the time of where HaKadosh, everybody is going to see Hashem. So the focus really should be of why we want Mashiach. And that should not be for our own benefit. It's really for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Right, but if you're going to say that it's only for like that when Mashiach comes we're going to just be staring at HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem could have made the world like no free will. Everyone sees Him from the beginning as it's Mashiach, it's going to be that kind of thing where we all know and we all see so clearly why can't Hashem just put it in the beginning like that? Oh, you're asking the same question for a perfect timing for the class. Because when you work for something, just like the Gemara goes and says that a person goes and prefers one cog of their own work than nine measurements of somebody else's work, because when you work for something and you earn something, you appreciate it much more. Because really the focus, and it says in Mashiach Hashem, that the focus of this world is to gain the ultimate pleasure. But what's the ultimate pleasure? The ultimate pleasure is when you work for something, when you earned it, not when it was delivered for you, not when when uh, you know Mister Daddy Brath goes and gives you everything. But it's when you earned it. 
It's, it's where Mr. Diligent works for it. That's where the purpose of it is. So the world is for the purpose of gaining that pleasure. And how do we gain that pleasure? By working. By working for it. I'm not talking about working physically, working spiritually. So we go and we have the ultimate benefit by that. Right, but then you could just say, but that's what Mashiach, Mashiach is. You don't work for it anymore. You already know it. It's already, it's already there. You don't need to like... No, no, no. You are working for it in a certain extent, but it's in a lesser level. It's a, you're sort of, think of it like this. Think of it that you created a painting and then you're like, I don't know if it's a good painting. I don't know if this is a good example, but I'm going to give it. Let's say you created a, a, a painting, but you didn't, you know how you have those paintings where you, it's like, it's like, uh, sections and there's letter, there's numbers and like number one is red. And that, yeah, okay, you know what I'm talking about? So let, think of it like this. Like throughout this world, you created your painting, but you couldn't paint anything yet. You created your outlines of everything that you had. When Mashiach comes, you're going to finalize that when you're going to go and you're going to finally finish off with that painting and you're going to color. You have the drawing there, but the painting is going to be finalized once Mashiach comes. That's when you're going to be able to finalize and really utilize it and, and get to your potential that you worked so hard to achieve in this world. To a certain extent. One of the reasons. Not all of them. Okay, but what about the guy who aren't working on themselves? Why would any... like, Or even a, a Jew who's just like, okay, with his standard, even though obviously it's not the best or else he wouldn't be here, but he's not working on it. He's just like going through the phases. He's not doing anything, though. When he goes to Mashiach, there's going to be no outline for him. Why would he want Mashiach? Why would a guy? Why would a guy want Mashiach? Is a good question. I don't know. They probably they you know I don't see that they uh, they know the difference. But that, that shouldn't say all guys. Some guys keep Shavu Mitzvahs B'nai Nayach. Some uh, there are many. I shouldn't say some. There are many that I know personally that keep Shavu Mitzvahs B'nai Nayach. So they do want Mashiach to come. They do. They're doing what is right. But but stop a regular guy. You're right. Like well, I don't know why they want Mashiach. They're they're enjoying their life. They they're not thinking about it. They're not. When you look at a Christians, for example, and uh, you know, and they want their their Mashiach, their second coming. Like, why do they want it for? They want it so that their God's name is going to be one. No, not necessarily. They want it for whatever you know reason that they have. Their their own, you know, that Christianity was built on more of a selfish uh, type of uh, reasoning of 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 what what you know the religion could do for me, and that's why they negated literally all the halachos. Like, it's not about what I'm doing for God, it's about what God's doing for me. All I have to do is accept the Messiah and I can do whatever I want and I won't get punished. It's it's a selfish twist on religion. So, why would they want Mashiach? Mashiach, they would think that's more of a selfish reason behind it. So, granted, a guy wouldn't, you know, why would they want Mashiach unless they understand the reasoning behind it? But, um, but that's neither here nor there. We're not answering for Gaia, and we're answering for the Jewish nation and the purpose of why we're here for. Obviously, the you know the, the Gaia world has a purpose, but if they're not fulfilling it, that's a bad, and they wouldn't want the finalization of it if they're not doing what they're supposed to, to begin with. Okay, so this is just also, it's on GF, but it's a little more aside. Thank you for that, point. that was really great, but... Um, I was listening to one of your classes on Mashiach and was saying when all the like souls in Shemayim are like in this world, that's like one of the times where Mashiach will come. So when Mashiach comes, does that mean that no one else will have children? No, not necessarily. The Rambam says that during the time of Mashiach, there, there will still be the continuation of it. There is an aspect. So in order to understand, this is based off the fact there's a place in the Shemayim called the Guf. And the, when it gets depleted of all the neshamas, that's when, that's when, uh, Mashiach is supposed to come. 
Um, but again, there's a lot. There's a lot that can be asked on that. And not to get into a long, because I know the hour is getting late, but not to get into a long, overdrawn, you know, um, discussion about it. But there is, uh, you know, the Gemara also says that Mashiach could come either, either Ba'achik Shanah, Kedush Baruch could hurry it up, or Be'itan, it's time. But how could a Kedush Baruch hurry it up if there's still more souls that still need to come in? So it means that we're on a certain level, like where, where it goes. There's a lot of questions on how do you go and how do you understand this concept. But, the question that you asked was, will there be children when Mashiach comes? According to the Rambam, yes, the world will continue as it is during Mashiach comes. We are going to be the, who are going to be those souls and where are they going to come from? It's a good question. It could be Gilgulim, it could be different, uh, um, you know. It, remember, when Mashiach comes, Tchias Mesim doesn't, is not necessarily going to happen right in the beginning. It usually happens, you know, according to the process, it's going to happen a little bit later. So it is possible Mashiach comes and there's going to still be, you know, souls coming into this world and fixing whatever it is they need to fix in that period of time. There was a, there was a Tana, Tana on Amira, I don't remember, that used to write down in his pad, he used to have a little pad, or whatever, little, he used to write down that when Mashiach comes and the base of Mesa is going to be rebuilt, I'm going to be giving this carbon for this reason. So there are, there are people that they want to come back over here and they want to give carbonus. They want to fulfill their, the, you know, what they couldn't do while they were alive because there was no base of Mikdash. And when Mashiach comes, there will be a base of Mikdash. So there's, there's different, uh, um, ideas of what will happen, when will happen. But again, it's a very complex topic when you're dealing in the future and how it will come about. The Rambam goes and says, we will see when it comes. That's how we'll figure it out. But we have an idea of how it will go. But exactly what is the, all the details, it's very, very difficult to, to comprehend in our, in our you know, state, in our generation. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for all those amazing questions. Good. It was a class in itself. We've got to okay, put this... Uh, you know, class about money, Amuna, and slash Mashiach. <laughs> this is good. Okay, this is a topic that everybody always usually uh, enjoys. So, Bo Hashem, thank you for that. All right. Thank you all for joining. Thank you all for staying for the late hour. And uh, may we see Mashiach. Have an amazing, amazing week, life, year, just everything amazing. Right? This brother just bless us with infinite blessings. And... You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.